In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents He's in the Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. You better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Today's guest is John King, the former Secretary of Education under President Obama and current candidate for the governor of Maryland. John is here to tell us about how his own education set him on the path he's on today, who has inspired him, and what he hopes to accomplish as the future governor of Maryland. With that, let's get the tea from John. Hello, thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled to be talking to you. Excited to talk with you. Yes, yeah, so you have such a riveting career. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about sort of just like your general story, your background, you know, how you got to Obama's White House and to your current role as president of the Education Trust and um, to your current governor's race? Sure. Um, well, it really starts with um, having been the kid of two educators who um, made school the center of our conversation every night uh, when I was a kid growing up. Uh, And they instilled in me this love for school, but they couldn't have known the difference that schools would ultimately make in my life. They both passed away when I was little. Uh, My mom, when I was eight in October fourth grade. And then I lived with my dad who was sick with Alzheimer's. So home was incredibly Uh, difficult, unstable. Um, I didn't know what my father would be like from one night to the next. And then he passed away when I was 12. And the thing that saved me was great public schools and great public school teachers who made school a place that was safe and engaging and compelling and interesting. Um, I remember the stuff we did in those uh, early years in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, especially like it was yesterday we did uh, productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare in elementary school. We did a production of Alice in Wonderland. I was the rose in Alice in Wonderland with big red felt petals sticking out of my head. And I remember those things so clearly because school was the one place I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid at home. And after my dad passed and I moved around different family members, different schools, um, you know, like a lot of kids who experienced trauma, I struggled. I got in a lot of trouble in high school. I actually got kicked out of high school. I always tell people I'm the first U.S. Secretary of Education who've been kicked out of high school. Um, But again, it was teachers and a school counselor who invested in me and gave me a sense of hope. And because of them, I became a teacher. And so I was a high school social studies teacher. I was a middle school principal. Um, And then I moved into education policy and ultimately had the chance to serve as Secretary of Education for President Obama. And really, my whole career was about trying to create for other kids 
the kind of supportive school environments that made such a huge difference for me. And when the administration ended, I wanted to continue that work. So I came to the Education Trust, which is really an education civil rights organization. We advocate for educational opportunity for low-income students and students of color. So it's really a good way to continue the work that we were doing in, in the Obama administration. And you know, running for governor is grounded in the same values that drove me to get into public service, knowing that government and public institutions like great public schools can make a huge difference in people's lives. That's really such an amazing story. I Something that I have in common with you is that I too am a lover of school. Um, had great teachers, had really like life, alt- not life altering maybe, but life directing moments of experiences. And so it really is so critical how teachers are and that they are, they are filled with the purpose that they set out to. But um, could you share maybe like an experience or about a teacher who really shaped your life and what it was that they did and why you, what you think, I guess, makes that type of person? Mm, mm, Absolutely. So, you know, the teacher who probably had the biggest impact on me was a teacher uh, at PS276 in Canarsie, Brooklyn, who was my fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teacher. He looped with us, which was very unusual in New York City public schools at the time. And Mr. Osterall, who I'm still in touch with, uh, who came to my swearing-in as secretary, he's just an amazing, amazing person. Um, he created this space that was both really rigorous and challenging, but also very loving at the same time. You know, so we, for example, we read the New York Times every day in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. You know, it was the first thing we would do when we came into the classroom, and uh, that helped expose us to, you know, to politics, to things happening all over the world, um, to issues in science, and um, it gave us a sense that the world was much bigger than Canarsie, Brooklyn. He was the kind of teacher when you finished a book, he'd be there with the next one. You know, when you finished a math problem, he'd have another math problem for you that was a little bit more challenging. And he gave you this sense that that you could do big things. And um, he really became, during that period of my life, almost like a surrogate father for me. Um, his role was just so important. And I think it really, for him, he understood that for a lot of kids, school, um, is there one safe space? And he made his classroom um, a place where you knew you could get help when you were struggling, but you knew you'd be pushed uh, to be your best self, to be the best student you could be. Um, and, you know, as I've stayed in touch with him, he's continued that throughout his career. And then even after he retired, he would still do Shakespeare productions at elementary schools because he just loved helping students um, find joy in learning. That's really, really amazing. And yeah, I mean, it's so important to have teachers and role models like that because you're right. School is sometimes the only safe space or the most pleasant space for children. Given that it is so important for teachers to be these 
these figures for children and typically I don't think people go into teaching for like the money or the you know or the the fame they're going into it because they really want to do it but now we're facing a teacher shortage what do you think should be done about that well there are a couple things one is um we have to make it more affordable for folks to complete higher education one of the things that happens to uh, folks who are interested in teaching is they realize how much it's going to cost them to pay off their student debt when they finish college and they feel like they have to make other choices. So trying to um, make college more affordable generally, but then specifically incentives for folks who want to teach in particularly high needs communities could make a huge difference. And you know that's what many of our international peers do. They make it so that the government covers the cost of college for folks who are going into teaching because they know it is a service to the country. Um, so that would be that's one too, is we've got to make the pay and the working conditions better for teachers. If you're a teacher, you shouldn't have to work a second job or a third job just to be able to pay your mortgage and support your family. You should be able to have a good life on a teacher's salary and your working conditions should be supportive. You know, if the, if the copier never works, if there's water dripping from the ceiling, if there are um, rodents running across the floor, like that's not a place anyone would wanna work. And so we've gotta invest in uh, schools being uh, really positive work environments for teachers and students. Well, I will say this. I did go to a, a, a well-funded and good public school and there was still water dripping from the ceiling. Like, mm -hmm. I remember it very, very well. So it's, and I mean, we had wonderful teachers. So, and it, you know, this, there was never a question about supplies as there are in such a high percentage of American schools. And still, it, you know, there were lackings, but it really does just sort of reflect the priorities of the country. But just one more personal question before we get into more policy related things. How, can you tell us how you went from being kicked out of school to going to Harvard, Yale and Columbia? Yeah, well, a, a couple things. So um, one is I was very lucky that I had teachers and a school counselor who persuaded me that having been kicked out of high school didn't mean my life was over. And I really needed that at that time and, and that confidence that I could recover. And so, you know, throughout my career, I've done a lot of work around second chances. Um, I, you know, I think a lot about folks who've made mistakes and end up in the criminal justice system, which easily could have been me. And we don't do enough to make it possible for folks to you know, get their lives back on track when they return home from incarceration, for example. So second chances were hugely important. And the other piece was I went, um, after I got kicked out of high school, I, I moved to live with my uncle, uh, my uncle Hal, who was uh, career Air Force. He was a Tuskegee Airman, so one of the first African-American um, pilots in the U.S. military uh, during World War II. And my uncle uh, ran a tight ship, so it was the first time really since my mom had passed that I had real structure at home, and that, that made a huge difference. Uh, but he also was such a powerful example of 
kind of perseverance in life. You know, the Tuskegee Airmen were subjected to horrible treatment because there were people who didn't believe black people should be able to be pilots. And through all that, he still became a pilot. When he came back after World War II, he wanted to be an accountant and wasn't allowed to be because of racial discrimination. So he became a firefighter, right? Like he faced discrimination and his response was, let me go take a job where I have to run into burning buildings and save people's lives. And then he went back into the military and was a career Air Force officer. And so he said to me, when I came to live with him, look, neither you nor I can change the things that happened to you as a kid. But the question is, what kind of person do you want to be now? What kind of life do you want to live now? And that was such an important moment for me where he helped me see that there were things I could control and that I could... Um, put my life on a better path. It made a huge, huge difference for me. Yeah, it, you know, it really is so true because so many times just kids don't have that figure who, mm-hmm. like, is really invested in them and, and giving, you know, equal quantities, love and assistance. Yes. And discipline. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. So 
So you mentioned you mentioned living with your uncle and you also wrote about him in a recent op-ed that you published in the Washington Post where you spoke about critical race theory. So this was where I sort of wanted to go next to the conversation. What are your thoughts on this controversy that's happening? And could you sort of explain how it's been misinterpreted by the the public? Absolutely. I mean, this is the craziest thing. Like three months ago, I hadn't really thought about critical race theory since law school. You know, critical race theory was a body of legal scholarship examining systemic racism and its role in our uh, legal history. And up and like I said, up until three or four months ago, I just I hadn't really thought a lot about critical race theory since law school. Then suddenly, it became this kind of mantra on the far right to kind of generate culture wars. And so they started using critical race theory to refer to any conversation about um, hard parts of our history, like slavery or Japanese American internment. Uh, they use it to refer to any discussion of equity uh, or um, addressing racial injustice. And so it became this catch-all phrase on the right. And then there started to be these Facebook groups and all of this organizing to say, well, if critical race theory is taught in schools, then kids are being taught um, to hate people who are different from them, or white kids are being taught to hate themselves. And it's so bizarre because there's no first grade teacher who's teaching critical race theory in her classroom, Uh, but it was a very convenient kind of right wing um, framing. It sounds scary, you know, it critical race right. theory. Right, that's yeah. right. It's a convenient boogeyman. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so what I tried to argue in the op-ed is that the real question is, are we going to be honest about our history? Are we going to teach um, the places where we've fallen short of our aspirations as a country, where we haven't been true to the principles of democracy and equality. And I believe as a social studies teacher, we need to tell those stories. Students need to understand that in order to be uh, engaged citizens. And I use the example of my uncle to say, it's not unpatriotic to acknowledge the things that have been wrong in their history. My uncle is an incredible patriot. I mean, he would put out his American flag every day you know, he believed in the in the country, even though he lived through tremendous di- discrimination, even though he had served in the military defending a country where black people in many places were not allowed to vote and participate as full citizens, but because he believed in a principle of what America could be. And so to me, that's the height of patriotism, to believe in that principle, to call out the things that are unjust or wrong, and try to make them better. Yeah, I mean, the fact that even patriotism has been politicized, I guess you could argue it has been for maybe like the past 20 years or so. It's pretty, it's a feat. But um, since you are a teacher, and um, I think it is important for even the listeners of this podcast who generally have no problem with quote unquote critical race theory or the or acknowledging our country's shortcomings and crimes let's be honest and could you actually for the sake of the listeners describe what critical race theory actually is yeah well it really began as this body of scholarship in law schools 
making the argument that um, some of the structures in American society, some of the systems are set up in ways that are discriminatory or oppressive, even if there's not a person who's sort of enacting a racist um, uh, treatment of someone, there are these underlying systems that operate in ways that create a racial caste system. And it was really intended to push legal scholarship and legal arguments towards tackling some of those underlying systems. And, you know, I, th I think actually critical race theory itself is not that scary when you delve into it, because of course we see that we have these systems that operate to create disadvantage. Um, but, you know, it's now being used in a way um, really just to, to generate fear and to organize. I mean, I, you know, the, the far right has run candidates for school boards who are campaigning on an anti-critical race theory platform. You know, it's on all, it's on Fox News, it's on uh, the Sinclair media stations. I mean, they're really using it to drive a, a political agenda that's really about the 22 elections and figuring out can they motivate uh, folks to be so mad about this kind of uh, false um, enemy that they show up and, and vote for Republicans. It's frustratingly cynical, and especially now seeing like um, measures passed or measures proposed in various states that are like, well, you can't say the KKK was definitely bad. And so, okay, just to just to one more thing about critical race theory. So, would you say that that's like, I think, for example, would it be like a legal argument to support to support something like affirmative action? Yeah, because you well, because you have to look at the history of systemic inequality and figure out, well, what do we do in law to dismantle that? So it's basically just like a lens of looking at why, you know, you should interpret the law a certain way. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. But definitely not a thing that, you know, a third grader is, is sitting around chatting about. It also becomes sort of like a catch-all for like white fragility, like teaching actual history and calling it what it was. So... I completely, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So in terms of like your ideals, what do you think are the greatest needs right now for American students? And do you think we're ever getting free anything? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I do think there's this moment after COVID where people are much more conscious that government matters and that competent government matters. So I think there's an opportunity to sort of build on that. And, and there's also a sense that we are all deeply interconnected. And, you know, if the person at the grocery store doesn't have paid sick leave, so they have to come into work and they're sick, then we're all going to get sick, right? And like we're all, all our fates are bound up together. I think there's more realization of that. So for me, what I would say is in the wealthiest country, that has ever existed on the face of the earth, we can afford to have affordable childcare birth through five, right? And that, that doesn't seem crazy. There are other countries that do that, right? We can make it so that families know that they're gonna get good, high quality childcare at a, at a price they can afford, um, that their child is gonna get not only the academic stimulation, but the positive 
uh, socio-emotional environment, the opportunities for play and creativity that are going to help them prepare for school. In our K-12 system, again, in the wealthiest country in the world, we can afford to have every kid get a quality K-12 education. And it shouldn't matter your race, your zip code, your immigration status, your family's income. Everybody should be able to get strong teaching, a well-rounded education. It shouldn't be that some schools have arts programs and others don't. All kids should have, of course, English, math, science, social studies, but also the arts, also opportunities for athletics, school facilities where you can go to the water fountain and drink the water. Can you imagine that in this country, there are schools where the water fountains are covered over with plastic bags because of the lead in the water? You know, sadly, I can definitely imagine it. You know, I can. Yeah, I think I think it's like even with education, like public health, it's very obvious. But how, you know, each of us affect each other, at least at this point to some people. Um, But public education is less so because you you then have you have these arguments like China's going to get ahead of us and all these things. And it's like, okay, well, if you didn't want that to happen, you had to invest in your population Mm -hmm. and there's just no interest in investing in like the everyone, the mass, you know, it's, yeah, it's very, it's, it's just another way that America is so America. (laughs) Yeah. I think our (laughs) tendency towards the like, libertarian, I'm going to get what's mine for me, actually what doesn't make for the most prosperous, healthy society. We ought to be thinking about, you know, what is in the common good and public schools are at the center of that. And so is public higher education. You should be able to go to public higher ed institutions in your state and graduate without debt. That is achievable. If we are willing to make the investment in our people. Instead, we're watching Jeff Bezos blast off in a penis. I have to ask, what was it like working for President Obama? It was wonderful for for a few reasons. One is um, President Obama is just an incredibly thoughtful and committed uh, leader who was always incredibly well prepared for every conversation and interested in the detail of policy. So that was, that was of a course- A school lover also. Exactly, both, both President Obama and Mrs. Obama believe so deeply in education and the role that it can play. So that, that made it very easy uh, for us to work together. Um, but he also, I think is very conscious of the level of, of inequity that we have in our society and trying to address that. And there was always a sense of urgency about how do we use the levers of government to try to expand the circle of opportunity. And that was amazing. You know, one of my favorite moments um, with the president, because he took such interest in young people, we had this luncheon with um, young men who are part of a mentoring program that was created as part of the My Brother's Keeper initiative around boys and young men of color. And so it's a White House mentoring initiative. And so these were young men in um, high school and college who were being mentored by folks in the White House. 
And we had this luncheon in the White House, which is amazing, right, to say, you know, we we're just hanging out, having lunch at the White House. And there's a very small group of students and a few of the cabinet members who were also men of color. And one of the students asked the president about the keys to his success. And, you know, it would have been easy to, to uh, like have a flippant answer, but he gave such a thoughtful answer because he was so interested in helping these young people think about their futures. He said two things. One is uh, he learned in college that he was never going to let other people outwork him, that he may not always come in with the most talent, but he wasn't going to lose out to someone else because they worked harder. And so that had always driven his career, knowing that he was going to outwork the opposition. I thought that was very, very powerful. He definitely... If you read his book, he definitely outworks a lot of everybody. (laughs) Exactly. And the second thing, which was really just uh, such a teacher thing to say, but just wonderful to me, uh, was that um, reading had played such a powerful role for him. And he said, you know, when you read, you really get a chance to see the world from other people's perspectives whether it's the central character in a, in, in a work of fiction or, you know, the person who's the subject of a biography or the person who's writing their autobiography, you get to see the world through their eyes and you learn so much about people through that. And he talked about how his career in politics had benefited so much from his ability to try to understand other people's perspectives on issues, even if they disagreed with him, even if their life experience was vastly different, and that that was grounded in the experience of, of being a reader. It was just, it was beautiful. What a guy, you know, we mm-hmm. we are so lucky to have had him and um, it's just disappointing to see what has come in the wake of, of him. And okay, so for our last kind of topic, I would love to talk about your gubernatorial run in Maryland and sort of your vision for the state. So besides education, what are some areas you'd like to focus on? And like, how do you think voting rights are doing in Maryland? Yeah, yeah. So, look, there's a lot of opportunity in Maryland because we we have a lot of resources here. um, And we, I think, haven't been ambitious enough under our our current governor who... uh, you know, deserves credit as a Republican for being a critic of Trump. Uh, but that's a pretty low bar to say, like, I'm not with the the fascist racist guy. Right. Like, I'm not completely insane. <laughs> it doesn't really qualify yeah. as, like, outstanding achievement. But, like, for some reason, emotionally, it does. <laughs> like I know. You know I, mean? I know. Sadly. Because it's rare, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, but still. Back to your run. Yes, yes. yes. So I think we could be much more ambitious. And and two areas in particular I think a lot about. One is uh, how do we expand economic opportunity in this state? You know, we have really two Marylands. We have folks who, through COVID, did very well. Were able to work from home, had professional jobs, uh, in some cases made more during this period than before. And then there's this other economy where folks are really struggling, where COVID had a very dire impact and they were struggling before COVID. And so how do we make sure that we're creating good jobs and economic dignity? We don't have paid family leave in Maryland. So if someone in your family gets sick, you have to worry if I take time to take care of them, I might lose my job. We have these big exceptions to paid sick leave. 
as I said, we learn from COVID how dangerous that is. Right? We, we are phasing towards a $15 minimum wage, but we, don't, we aren't doing enough to make sure that you can live on that. Right. And and we, we need to invest in affordable housing. We need to invest in public transit. We need to have a vision of economic development that isn't just about wealth maximization. Right. But is about ensuring that people can have good quality lives. And so that that's that's one priority for me. Another place where we have been ambitious is around climate. And, you know, if you pick up the paper today from fires to floods, like climate is not a tomorrow problem. This is not something where we need goals for like 50 years from now. This is an emergency that requires immediate action. And I want to make Maryland one of the first states to be carbon neutral. I think we could be doing much more to grow uh, our, our solar industry, our offshore wind industry, using geothermal to, uh, to manage temperature in our buildings. And we should be all in on tackling climate change and environmental justice because the reality is pollution and climate change have a disparate negative impact on communities of color, low-income communities. And so you can't be serious about climate action if you're not also serious about environmental justice issues. Wow. You, I mean, there are really just so many things to tackle. How, like, how do you feel about the, the weight of all of these issues? Well, you know, I guess what I'd say is I am optimistic that change is possible. And I try to draw inspiration from the folks who've come before. Look, I'm talking to you from Silver Spring, Maryland, in Montgomery County. I'm about 25 miles from where my great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I'm alive today because my great-grandfather and his family lived for a future they could not see, right? And their, their uh, willingness to survive, their tenacity to survive is what made my life possible. And in our family, that means in three generations, we've gone from enslaved in a cabin in Gaithersburg, Maryland, that's still standing on the property that's still owned by the family that owned my family, direct line descendants of the family that owned my family. So we went from that enslaved in that cabin to serving the cabinet of the first black president. That's pretty amazing about what's possible in this country. So I try to draw inspiration from that, from their example, my ancestors example, and say, we, we can make progress on all of these challenges. That is a very inspiring, inspiring note. And just to end, I have to ask, what is your favorite book? Oh, wow. Uh, can I say two? So Yeah, of my course. Favorite, my, my favorite fiction book is uh, Song of Solomon, uh, Toni Morrison. And my favorite nonfiction book is this book called Leadership Without Easy Answers, uh, which is by a guy named Ron Heifetz, who writes about the idea that leaders really have to see their role not as solving problems for the community, but helping the community bridge the gap between their current reality and their values and aspirations. And that that, when you think about leadership that way, that's helping the community change and adapt to 
achieve their values and aspirations. And I like that notion of leadership because it's not about one single individual who's going to make it all better. It's really about how do you support the community through a process of positive change. Well, that definitely sounds applicable to, you know, some of the leadership skills you would need as governor. So absolutely. So just before we say goodbye, where can our listeners find your your website, any information, assistance with your campaign or donations? Yes, yes. Well, I hope folks will come to johnkingforgovernor.com and sign up uh, to learn about the campaign of course, we need contributions to the campaign to get our message out. We'd love people to volunteer if they're, if they're in Maryland. So I, I hope people will check us out, johnkingforgovernor.com. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful and inspiring conversation. And I think our audience is really going to love it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Afternoon Tea is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Our editor is Stacey Wong. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.